Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. I'm so glad to have you here. Before we get into today's episode, I want to tell you about something that I'm doing later this month, you know, in January. So I'm hosting a meetup for the podcast, the Forward Thinking Founders Meetup. I'm inviting every guest I've ever had on. I'm inviting any angel investor who's an angel investor in the podcast. And it's going to be a lot of fun. We're having it at a great location in San Francisco in late January, and I would love for you to come. Right now, there's two ways for you to come, really. Um, you can buy a ticket on Eventbrite for 50 bucks, um, or you can do what I want you to do in the first place and become an angel investor in the podcast. If you become an angel investor in the podcast, you get to come to this meetup uh, you know, complimentary to what you pay, which is $10 a month or $100 a year, on top of all the other benefits you get for being a, uh, an angel investor. Um, if you go on my Twitter, which is Matt underscore Sherman, you'll see that I am playing some like interesting games. If you want to come for free, you have to find someone with a promo code. So if you're interested in doing something like that, head over to Twitter at Matt with one T underscore Sherman. But if you just want to go, you don't want to play games, you just want to meet amazing guests that I've had on the podcast, just become an angel investor. You can do this at glow.fm slash F20R. What you get is obviously access into the meetup, you get premium content, you get an online community, and you get my highest graces and my thank yous because I really appreciate the supporters. So, you know, that's all I have right now. We're going to get into the podcast, but if you want to come to the meetup, then become an angel investor or pay 50 bucks. Up to you. With that, let's get into today's episode. Run it! All right, how is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Ed Harris, who is the creator of Sharpest Minds. Ed, welcome to the show. How is it going? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Uh, It's really great to be here. Yeah, I, I'm very excited to have you on just because you are building a product that is definitely that intersects with one of my, you know, a few of my actual like very deep interests. So I'm excited to dive in. But kind of with that, I'm sure a lot of people listening have no idea what you do or what the product is. So let's let's start there. What is Sharpest Minds? So Sharpest Minds is a mentorship program for machine learning and data science that is powered by income share agreements. Um, And if you haven't heard of income share agreements before, what that means is that uh, if you're going through the mentorship, you don't pay anything until you're hired. And when you're hired, you pay a percentage of your first year of salary. And mentors uh, do income share agreements with mentees individually. So that means that your mentor will individually be like, I'll ask for 5% of your first year salary or whatever, and Sharpest Minds makes money in a similar way. Okay, so let's walk through the almost like the UX. If I was a, let's say if I am a mentor, so let's yeah. say I, I, you know, I'm a data science whiz, which I'm not, but we're pretending that I am. And so I would do, do I go onto the platform and just raise my hand and say, hey, like I, I want a mentor or actually, can you just walk through uh, the, the process of how a mentor gets involved and then we'll do the opposite side after? 
Absolutely, yeah. So it's pretty straightforward. As a mentor, uh, you have to apply to join as a mentor. Um, and what we do is we do a screen of your LinkedIn and experience and so forth. We do uh, an interview and, and onboarding and screening. And uh, then from there, you basically, you come on board, um, answer a few questions we use to help match you. And you can, uh, mentees will generally apply to you. So generally, like you sit back and, and mentees will apply to you and you can interview them and decide uh, does this feel like someone that I'd like to work with or not? Because if you think of it from the mentor standpoint, like a mentor who wants to work with a mentee is effectively an investor in that mentee. So like if you're a mentor, you're like, yeah, I'm going to invest my time, like my valuable professional time that is worth like quite a lot per hour into you. And so I need to like screen you and, and, and get a sense of who you are. Um, I want to enjoy the experience too. So I want to chat with you and figure out just like, are we personality wise compatible? Um, and then if the answer is yes, then I as a mentor make you a, a mentorship offer that says like, I'll work with you for this much time, this many weeks, this many hours per week. And I'll ask for this percent of your salary once you get hired. So it's a true marketplace. Mentors can set the terms that they want. Um, we sometimes have mentorships that are like as short as four or five weeks if someone's already nearly ready. And some that are as long as a year if they're just like, I want to work with someone who's totally green and take them from zero to 100. Man, I'm getting so many questions that are popping up. This is this is great. So I I don't know why this is sticking out in my head, but I I am curious um, about the um, like how do you vet or I guess the word isn't vet. It's like you, they apply and then you and you screen all the mentors. I'm sure you get people from someone who's read a basic data science book all the way to like a PhD in data science, right? Like like all these all different types. And um, there's a cutoff, obviously, where you're not where you're not going to take people. How do you think about this? Is it very quantitative, where you need X amount of skills? Is it qualitative, where you need this type of personality? Or how do you think about that on who you take and who you don't? Are you talking about mentors here, right? Talking, yeah, talking about mentors. Yes, got it. Uh, so for mentors, we have a we have basic a basic universal standard, which is you should have at least one year of experience in a data science role before you qualify to mentor. Beyond that, one of the magical secrets of what we do is the deal we offer to mentors is the kind of deal that doesn't really appeal to you if you're not genuinely confident in your own abilities. So if I'm a mentor and like deep down inside, and, and, and this, by the way, this isn't the only reason why you wouldn't mentor, but like it's just a class of reason why you wouldn't. If deep down inside you're like, oh, you know, I, I don't really think that I can get someone up to this point, I'm not really confident in myself, then you will discover better things to do with your time than to mentor when your payment is purely based on the quality of, of like what you do. Um, and so what ends up happening is like people who uh, are truly confident in themselves or people who just love the idea of mentoring. You see this a lot in educators who have left uh, whatever they were doing to do something else and they miss it. They just miss like, oh, like I was TAing during grad school and I just like, I love that interaction. People who just, who miss it and want to come back to it um, and who truly are like, really, really love it. Um, these people are actually some of the most effective. Um, the kinds of people who are just like, uh, when, when you talk to them and they're like, uh, I, like I, I don't care so much about the money, you can almost always just be like, oh, okay, 
you're probably going to make a lot of money through this. Um, it's kind of this, this, uh, this, this funny thing where um, for anything that's really results-based, um, passion tends to come before the returns. And so, um, and, and, and structuring stuff like this, the same way that just like, um, you know, being a, a startup founder um, is a pretty effective filter for like people who are truly passionate in, in ideas. Um, this turns out to just be a good, effective, uh, uh, like pre-filter. People self-select as I'm really interested or I'm really confident. So there's actually, um, if just the act of applying to a program like this um, doesn't completely pre-qualify you, but it significantly pre-qualifies you as a quality person. It almost makes me think of a Naval quote that I'm definitely going to screw up, but it's something along the lines of um, short-term people play games with other short-term people and like long, long game people play games with long, long game thinkers. I, that was not exactly correct, but you kind of get the gist. It's like, yeah, you, if you're going for the long game, you know, you're playing the long game. And I feel like you attract other people in it for the long game versus, versus yes. it. If, if you play an iterated game, the gains from your prior iterations compound into the future in so many ways. Like you develop a reputation as a mentor. Um, some of the best mentors have this phenomenon happen to them where uh, they, they simply like, they never have to look for mentees again. Because what happens is um, one of their mentees gets hired, other mentee ropes in like their buddy who's like, hey, you should like talk to my mentor. He's really good. And then it just happens in this endless string of, of referrals. So really good mentors just have this referral dynamic that develops around them. Absolutely. And it kind of, you know, it compounds, as you mentioned, in a career, which is why I actually now want to shift uh, from the mentor side to the mentee side. So I guess my first question on this is who was the persona? Or what is one persona or two personas of people that are going to find sharpest minds and uh, and sign up to get mentored or to find a mentor? Yeah, there's probably um, there's probably three or four personas who benefit. But I'll give you like just a, a handful so you get an idea. Um, one persona is let's say you've done a master's or PhD in math or physics and you're transitioning over to data science because you discovered, as I did when I did mine, that, oh no, there are not that many jobs for just, you know, if you just have a, a PhD in physics. Like you'd think like, oh no, you know, you do this thing and like your life is laid out, but that's not how the real world works and nobody tells you until the end. Um, so this is a common, uh, a common one. Um, also just like folks who are, you know, I used to be an X and now I want to be a data scientist. And X can be a surprising variety of values. Software engineer is a common thing. I'm a software engineer. I want to transition, but also, um, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm a marketer and I've done a bunch of, uh, I've done a bunch of, um, like a, a bunch of online courses. I've done a bunch of MOOCs, you know, stuff, stuff like that, or I've done a, a boot camp or two, like, um, in order to, uh, get the most value out of our program that you can. Uh, you have to start with some baseline level, but uh, and, and you can you can obtain that in in one of any number of ways. But uh, but yeah, so those are two general uh, general personas, like coming at it through academia, transitioning from another job. That makes sense. And are they coming to your platform to get better? at data science or to get better at career stuff and getting a job or 
everything. I guess what happened, like, can you explain, great, I get a mentor, what is supposed to happen and what am I supposed to get out of this, um, you know, before I get a job? Good question. So uh, the most common answer is both. And the way that the work is subdivided uh, on behind the scenes is the mentor is responsible for the technical side. So actually helping coach you through a project, pointing you to the right resources, answering questions if you get stuck, all of that sort of stuff. And the mentor actually has the ability in our like mentoring system to mark you as like, yeah, I think Matt, uh, I've been working with Matt for the last like two, three months. Um, I think he's ready to go now. I think he's, he'd do well in a job. You can literally as a mentor mark your mentee as job ready. And then that tells us, okay, great. Now it's time for us to review Matt's resume, his LinkedIn, um, help him introduce him to, to our hiring partners, help him uh, strategize how to reach out given his context, all of that. So the way it's divided is, all the custom stuff, which is the training, and like how, you know, how is it that Matt learns best? Is it like visual? Is it like this or like that? Everyone has a different, you know, it's plastic and that's where the customization uh, makes the most sense. Um, but then the other stuff, which is like, here's how to, you know, apply for jobs. A technical mentor may or may not have uh, a ton of expertise in that area, but we as the platform can specialize in it pretty hard. So we know kind of all of the, the tricks and like all of the places where there are like gaps in the big structure of the way job applications are supposed to work and how you can fly in under the radar through those gaps, depending on what your background is and, and all of your context. And so that's how we divide those two things up. Sorry about that. Um, so uh, this is fascinating. You are a couple of uh, things in my head. So um, I'm going to, I want to kind of describe you in a way and let me know if you kind of, you know, like this or don't like this or already aligned with this. So like, would you consider yeah. yourself in a way, a modern recruiting firm or staffing firm? Um, that's one bucket. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll start there. Uh, I don't want to like overwhelm you with a few thoughts, but like, do you, are you a recruiting firm in a, in a way on top of a mentorship kind of marketplace? Uh, no, we are not. And the thing that makes us definitely not a recruiting firm is that we don't charge companies for placements and we never, uh, we, we never plan to charge companies for placements. Um, this is important. We actually used to run, uh, like the thing we used to do before this, uh, our, our previous company was kind of a recruiting firm. And one of the things that did to us was that the person who is paying you money is the person who is your like that your customer and the person that you end up ultimately serving when a company pays you money um for for like a placement it does stuff to like to your incentives so for example um if you know back back in those days when one of our students or candidates would get a job at a company that we didn't have a deal with like we'd be really happy for them we'd be like oh this is great but we're not like it's it's also it's not great from a business point of view and that kind of was a breakage between what we wanted as being best for our students and what we wanted as what's best for our company and so um the mentorship program that we created uh came in part as a reaction to our own like emotional confliction of like Oh, you know, we 
we want this to be true, but also we can't survive if this is if this is like constantly like if if what we want in our hearts is not the same thing as what our business wants in its like money making machine. And so the best way to build a business is to align what you really want to do with what will make the business survive and grow and be successful. And so that was the uh, genesis of this. Yeah, that makes tons of sense. And uh, this is it's just, it's so interesting because I have, I have another comparison to make um, that, or not necessarily a comparison, but like a guess of how you could be categorized. Um, in, would you almost, this is kind of out there, but I'm going to go for it. Like, it kind of seems like because you operate on income share agreements um, and you let your mentors pick who they're going to be me mentoring, you're, are you also kind of like an investment firm? Not, you know, not investing in, in like venture capital or at, you know, but like, you know, this is a, this is a realm that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I want to like take the next 10, 15 minutes to just like talk about the, the ISAs and what that means for like you and how it works. And then what that kind of means for the future and future of, you know, investing in people. So to start, um, let's just kind of, I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit here, but I just want to start on this. So the ISA, yeah. um, so a student gets a job and then what the way the mentor gets paid is the mentor gets a percentage of that student's income for the X amount of years, depending on like the deal, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, yeah. The mentor makes a percentage of their first year of salary. Um, and to your question of, are we more like an investment firm? Um, this is probably closer than, than, than the first thing. Um, we, we are in a way an investment firm and in another way, a kind of platform for peer to peer investment denominated in hours rather than dollars. Um, and it's not your fault that you can't uh, quite categorize us because we are actually, uh, to the very best of our knowledge, the world's first marketplace for income share agreements. Um, nothing like this uh, existed before before us. Which so is so exciting. Yeah, it's it's so exciting because um, I've had a, um, like some of the guests I've had on on the podcast are very it, like have used income share agreements like Austin from Landis School and like Sean from Flock J. And this is being this is a whole new way that it can be used, which makes me so excited. Um, I want to dive into very nitty gritty. How does, like, like, what does it look like for a mentor to create the terms or pick the terms? Like, do they have a, oh, like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not even going to put words in your mouth. How does someone create a deal for someone to mentor? Yeah, so we have a, a, a standard template contract for a peer-to-peer -peer ISA. Um, and the, the way it works for the mentor is they basically just use one of our, our online forms in our web app and fill out the details. Um, the details are how many weeks they're going to work with you as a mentee, how many hours per week uh, as a minimum they're going to work with you and commit, and uh, what percentage of first-year salary they're going to ask for. So they plug in those numbers, they hit a button, and the mentee gets a notification saying, hey, um, this person wants to basically invest in you. Do you accept these terms or not? And they can chat about it and, and maybe negotiate and, or, and accept, and that's it. Okay, so I have some, I don't think they're going to be kind of weird questions, but the ones that are popping up. So I, I, I can't help but think about this from an investing angle, because like I spent a lot of time just thinking about VC and that stuff. So like I kind of have a few questions around that realm. Let's say 
um, someone like James Gallagher comes on your platform and James was a, is the youngest podcast guest that I've ever had on. He is going to be very successful. Um, and I just know that like, I would love a small piece of his upside and help him get there, right? Help him get to um, the next level. So James is a special guy in my opinion. And I might want to create a deal that is not that like that where it's not like totally super advantageous for me because I just want them to accept. And at the same time, what if another person comes in who I have no conviction for, but like they're kind of, there's a feeling that they're going to be successful. Um, could I, could I create a different, more competitive deal for them based on what I'm interested? You know what I like? Am I able to have different deals per mentee? Yeah. So in other words, are you saying that uh, I have Bob and John, can I offer Bob different terms from John? Exactly. That's a much more simple way of describing 100%. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Uh, the answer is absolutely yes. Um, the, the offers for mentorship are totally contextual, right? Because if you think about it, um, Bob might be uh, six weeks away from being job ready. John might be six months away from being job ready. It only makes sense for me to tune my offering in terms of like how much time I spend and how much I ask for, given how much risk I'm taking and all of that, um, according to Bob and John. And uh, like, you want to, to make as informed of a decision as you can. Like, maybe I'm like, hey, I just want to mentor someone I don't totally care. But at the same time, like, I feel like Bob is like kind of an iffy thing. So like, I'm, I'm not so sure about him. So I'm going to ask for a higher percentage because I feel like I'm taking more risk. But I talked to John and like, man, like this guy's like going to kill it for sure. Um, I also know like maybe he's talking to other mentors, like, okay, like I want to give him a good deal. Like I know that this is, so like, these are the dynamics of a marketplace, right? Um, as long as you structure it so that both parties can get the information they need about the other party and like everyone is incentivized to be honest, you can essentially let the, the, the pricing be a free variable and it will kind of settle into where the correct level is. All right. I don't say this often. I don't know if I've ever said this actually on the podcast, but I think this like might be one of the coolest ideas I've ever heard ever because what it, what, <laughs> the, what you, what you're doing is you're enabling, you're creating a platform for the ISA age, which leads me to, you know, my next couple of questions. Um, so right now you're verticalized in data science and you're, and you, you're very intentional there. Are you planning on just going vertical forever? Do you plan on expanding? I guess I'm kind of slightly wondering what the vision is um, for the short term, let's say five years from now, where, what, what's, you know, life look like for you? Yes, we definitely do plan on expanding. Um, there are actually quite a lot of um, uh, low marginal cost uh, benefits that you get uh, in a model like this when you expand to you know software engineering to like UI UX etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, one of the benefits is that many of our mentors are themselves also software engineers um, there's many folks who are data scientists machine learning engineers who are, where that shades into software engineering so you can have someone you can almost recycle a chunk of the mentor pool into, into software engineering. The other thing is that um, the hiring partner network that we have and that we're developing, um, they're hiring for data scientists, but generally companies, you know, hire for many roles, particularly the big ones. And so uh, essentially when you have a hiring partner on board, um, okay, they're hiring for, for more stuff. And it, it's just like, it's a, it's a, um, it's a marginal advantage for them to be like, oh, you know, I might as well hire from them for other stuff too, because they have reputation and, and all of that stuff. Um, we are definitely going vertical uh, deliberately to start. 
And um, the reason is that uh, in a marketplace, uh, marketplaces are hard to start. Uh, marketplaces where um, you, you, know, you don't get money, uh, your payback period is, is relatively long, are even harder to start. Um, and to start a marketplace from zero effectively, you need to choose to be dense along some axis. Um, uh, many of the, the, the sharing economy marketplaces chose geographic density. Uber started in San Francisco. Uh, Airbnb primarily started in New York. Um, we have chosen to go geographically broad because mentorships are remote, but we have to choose density along some other axis. Um, it's too diffuse. If you go like, we are mentorships for everything, um, it's better to just be like, hey, we're doing this one thing and we're going to crush this use case really, really well. And all of the stuff that we're building, like the infrastructure for reviewing resumes and LinkedIn, um, even the strategies for applying for jobs, like the 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 inter the practice interview uh, like infrastructure that we've built, um, the the advice, all of that stuff uh, is like probably you know eighty percent translational across uh, many many relevant domains. Much of it applies to software engineering, um, UX all of these kinds of technical fields. Um, a lot of the, because we've chosen to own the layer of this process that is uh, the job search layer, right? The stuff that's different is what the mentors do. It's like, I'm gonna train you in this, I'm gonna train you in that, in, in all kinds of different stuff. But the job search itself is kind of this cultural process and layer that is very, very common. There's a lot of commonality across these domains. So the last point you mentioned makes me think about the future of education and the future of work. And I kind of see some trends happening where obviously people are learning uh, through their own, their own learning, through like YouTube, through Udemy, through Udacity, through like a Lambda School or whatever. Um, do you, uh, have you thought about, or do you see yourself going in a direction where you pair self-learners with a mentor, which almost replaces, um, I mean, it, this might sound weird to say, but almost even replaces the new school uh, boot camps, even old school universities, because mentorship, it, you know, life's about mentorship. And if the education's available online, are you cutting out every school in the world and doing it mentorship driven? Not, not in a negative way. I'm not trying to make it sound like a bad thing, but you know what I mean? So um, this gets at the root of the economics of education at different stages. Mentorship has the highest ROI in the later stages of the educational process. So after you've learned the basics, uh, even if you've gone to like a cookie cutter type, you know, CS degree or, or whatever, something that's like kind of uh, baked in big batches, if you like, um, the last final step that takes you from, yeah, I know the basics and something to like, I now have a job that's the step where mentorship has the highest ROI. Combine that with the fact that mentors by definition are expensive people. They are uh, senior engineers in highly paid uh, functions in like in companies that, that desperately, desperately want to keep them on board as employees and pay them a ton of money. In order to like, there's, um, uh, there's a kind of BOMAL effect to this, which is like you have to give these people um, enough of an expectation value on the upside 
to rip them away from other stuff that they might otherwise be doing. And that's hard because you're competing with Google on for the time of this valuable person. And so um, the, this, this, by the way, this is why um, an investment model for mentorship is kind of the only way that can, that can really work to incentivize this in the long term. Um, it's the same, the same way how like, uh, you know, like we, even at our stage, like we couldn't buy the time of uh, the president of Y Combinator. Like we couldn't buy Michael Seibel's time for cash. We just couldn't afford it. But because we went through YC, Michael Seibel is as a partner, an investor in us, and so we can get time, his time and office hours from him because of the expectation value of our, of our own company's value. In the same way, you are, as a mentee, um, you're trading on your expectation value for the time of your mentor. But what that means is that earlier on, when you're learning the very, very basics, um, number one, it would require much more time from a mentor to take you from zero up to like this, this secondary point. Number two, you don't need it as much. Um, the, the basics are like, there are courses on there. There are good MOOCs. Like there, there, there are ways of just being like, here's, here's the, the, the content and so forth. And um, you can train people in that context with less expensive talent and TAs. So like you don't need an elite person to train you. What you need is like um, a, a, another human being to look you in the eye and ask you like, what progress have you made? Um, big, 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 huge value of, uh, of, of interpersonal uh, training is that. It's just like that, that motivation. But also someone who's like, you know, one or two steps ahead of you in the process. Um, and so you see uh, outfits like Lambda School uh, do it that way, where they have, you know, later students helping to train the earlier students, um, less, less expensive people, because at, at that stage, when you're kind of at the trunk of the tree, it makes sense. Like, you don't need super expensive people to, to train you yet. It's only when you when you've passed the point of, um, of stuff that can be learned in a big batch format, like you, you are, you are now past the point of like, uh, I'm not going to do just like another tutorial or like another MOOC or like, I'm kind of like spinning my wheels. Like I've got like the basics, but like I need the next level thing. That's the magic moment where mentorship, um, of, of an expert is actually going to get you to the result that you're looking for. So the, the, this is a long-winded way of saying just like um, uh, mentorship itself lives at the top layer of education, um, whereas other ways of learning are probably better to make up the bottom layer. I want to like keep roofing on this because this is, you know, this is in some ways like my world, like my last company was on this and the current company I'm working for Prenda is, is in this world in some capacity too. Love um, Prenda, by the way, Prenda is fantastic. I, I should honestly just do a separate podcast just interviewing Kelly because man, what a, what a, what a cool company. I think, I think, and yeah, never mind. That's, that's when he, when he's ready, we can do it. He's trying, he's, he's focusing on all these on other stuff. But um, anyways, what is interesting about this and what you're saying is it kind of sounds to me like you're saying that education in regards to like information being transferred through to the mind is, is, is accessible. There are higher, uh, there's like 
better forms of education, worse forms of education, self-paced, you know, taught. But there, there's that. And uh, I had someone on the podcast, one of the smartest brains in the future of education, in my opinion, Isaac Morehouse, who kind of broke up edu- uh, the future of education in three realms. There's like the actual education. There's like the learning there is the social element of making friends and you know going to parties and learning social skills. And then there's the network and there's the access. And it kind of sounds like to me that you are focusing on the access pillar. You are taking, you know, like you're not you're not doing starting education from zero to one. But once you once someone has that taken care of, it you can take them from one to n, n being a dream job. And I don't know if that's like a hundred percent accurate, but based on his model of education and what you're saying, that sounds like what you're doing. And the last thing I'll say about this is that. I think that is going to be the most valued by the market because because there's so many different sources of education that are being out there right now and access is not big. Yeah, access is still pretty hard. So um, I don't, that's not even leading to a question. It's kind of an observation. Would you say that's accurate or am I off or what do you think about that? It, it is certainly partly accurate. Um, the, the networking and access is a big part of what we do, but there is a, a very... Uh, real and critical learning component to it as well. Um, the the difference is the qual- like the the quality, not the quality, uh, but the kind of stuff that is being learned. Um, the what's important to realize is that when you get past the frontiers of what has been digested and prospected by the apparatus of blog post writing and course creation. When you get past that, there's this, um, this like, uh, this, this almost like frontier or hinterland of knowledge that's like, no one's quite written it down or like they haven't written it down in a way it's accessible. Um, it kind of lives in the heads of the practitioners because they've only just learned it. And they're kind of like at the rock face, like doing the mining, right? Like this is the, the this is the, the jump from uh, like, Oh yes. Like this is the comfortable, you know, town of knowledge to like, this is out in the wilderness of the forest and no one's ever been. There's this, region in between it's like well we haven't mapped this out as a as a civilization quite yet but the knowledge exists and it's really really important and the the signaling that comes from the knowledge in other words the ability for you to sit down at a whiteboard and discuss a problem as though you've been discussing this sort of thing with an expert for the last two or three months which you have that signaling gets picked up by the people who are interviewing you and they go okay I don't know quite how this person did it, but like, damn, like they seem like they've been at the rock face somehow, or they've like, they've spoken to like one of the grizzled people who's come back from it. Um, this level of knowledge is like, it's, it's very important. It's not something that's uh, been described very well uh, anywhere because it's like this amorphous thing that's still forming and congealing. And as our civilization learns and grows, six months in the future, this knowledge might now exist in the form of a nice packaged blog post. And so you're always kind of chasing it, but the practitioners are the ones who are at that, at that like level of frontier knowledge. And so uh, I think that, that the learning part of the, the like trio that you said there, um, it's, like, it's easy to ignore because there's not a word for it, but I'm trying to describe it as vividly as I can because 
it's so important, but it's just kind of like it lives in our blind spot. I feel like what you're talking about can be an, an, an analogy can be made to what venture capital was like before Brad Feld right venture uh, before Brad Feld wrote venture deals. Um, which was kind of like the handbook on how to raise money. And before then, you know, no one knew what the hell it was unless you already did it. So that makes a lot of sense. And I'm just amazed by your, your just like unique perspective on this. And I have a question about that. Where did you, um, you obviously have some opinions on what you're building and you have to, it's what founders have. They have opinions and then they go after them. Where did you, um, Where'd you learn, I, I, the, maybe the right word is an opinions, but you have some thoughts on the industry and where it's going and you're trying to capture, kind of like intersect it. How'd you get these opinions or these thoughts? Where'd they come from? Or how'd you develop these theses? That's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about, your thesis. Um, mostly direct experience. Uh, we were in data science as an industry for, you know, a year and a half, like doing this recruiting company before this, uh, that gave us insight into the industry. And then once you have insight into the industry and you start doing a slightly new thing in it, uh, it's easy to resolve what's industry weirdness and what is due to this new thing and new area. Uh, but direct experience, talking to lots and lots and lots of people going through it and being lucky enough to have accidentally built something that works. Definitely. Um, cool. So I want to shift the conversation slightly to a little more future looking. Um, and I don't know if this is necessarily a fair question because everything has patterns and, it, every, and everything's different as new industries come up, but I do want to ask it. So uh, obviously the reason these like new companies are able to be built, like Uber was able to be built because the smartphone recently came out and these like platform ships, right? And soon, you know, we're going to have a like a VR platform ship in my opinion I just ordered the quest today so I'm on this like VR VR high um, it might be blockchain it might be you know no code or whatever and when a new platform is created it's this whole new forest that no one has discovered no one has chopped down any of the trees no one has written a blog post on any of this stuff so do you have a framework in your head for how to think about um, platform shifts uh, and uh, and kind of think about how to go into that uncharted territory that you were talking about that's in maybe people's heads, but no one's written it down. How do you, can, how can you get that information and be the person to write that post six months later? Um, this is a really good question. Uh, we could also jam on it too. It's definitely not an easy question, but it's one I am curious to see if you have any thoughts on just because um, you, you just, you described it perfectly. There's a realm of information that is not written down, but it's in people's yeah. heads. So I just want to keep diving into that. To, to an extent, the problem here is that, uh, by the definition of newness, there are no rules, right? Like, um, there, there's a certain, like, as the explored territory grows, essentially the standard rises. The standard just rises with what's already been explored. When you clear that bar, though, um, there is an extent to which you're just on your own and you've got to figure it out. Uh, you, like, you, like, you kind of just have to follow 
what it is that you're truly interested in. And that is, that, that's something special because it keeps you going past walls that will, will stop most other people. And just getting past those walls is, um, is like a big part of the, the problem. But the other thing is like, sometimes, most often, there's just nothing behind the wall. And so you, you just wasted your time. Um, this is just like, this is just the way it is. Uh, you, you have this unexplored landscape of hills and valleys. You're maybe trying to, you know, get to a valley, let's say, like that's your, your goal. Um, you have to climb a hill to get there. Um, but sometimes there's just no valley or the valley's not worth it. The point of unexplored territory is that nobody knows what's in it or, or exactly how to explore it. Um, the, the one technique that uh, th this is, by the way, an almost perfect analogy to uh, gradient descent in machine learning itself, um, is like you have this big territory and like how do you explore it? And, and so probably the one uh, piece of advice uh, that, that is actually uh, is, is something that we, I found works really well for me, and that's also an analogy to a way that machine learning algorithms, like that you get a machine learning algorithm to optimize to, to learn, is this idea of uh, a cyclic learning rate. So that means um, diving really deep into something. And then after you've done a deep dive and worked like heck for a long time, taking a step back and like thinking about like, okay, am I even doing the right thing? Am I aimed in the right direction? And this is something that like good machine learning, it's a, it's a machine learning optimization strategy. It's like your goal in, um, in, in optimizing and in, in like, you know, descending these gradients is like, you want to find a, a valley that's really broad because it means that what you've discovered is a general truth about the world. If you find a valley that's too narrow, you've kind of found a pathological case. And so you want to be able to jump out of narrow valleys by taking a break, looking back and like doing a bigger jump than you otherwise normally would. Um, this is probably the best kind of generic advice I have for a situation like this. Yeah, it's really cool how you can tie that to an actual like algorithm or I don't know if you would call that an algorithm, but have, like it's something that happens in machine learning. Obviously, I'm showing my depth of knowledge in regards to the technology, um, which is not much. But the, the reason um, the reason I bring that up is because something I'm seeing, and I've been very active about this on Twitter for better or for worse. But I, the SEC, uh, the Security Exchange Commission, which kind of just, uh, they do a lot of things, but one of the things they do is tell who who can invest in what. And right now, like startups cannot get any investors unless they're an accredited investor, which means for people listening, $1 million net worth or $200,000 in salary two years in a row. And they have now been talking about eliminating that and changing it so anyone can invest. And here I am, I'm just like, wow, like, I got a podcast where I talk to you know a bunch of early stage founders and I feel like I'm pretty good at finding early stage people like what does this mean for me and like you know and and i'm just starting to go through the mental cycle of this could be a, a brand new forest to explore and i'm ready to like put on my goggles break out my axe and start exploring um but it's just you know obviously they have to change the regulation first <laughs> yeah uh, i think this is a really fascinating idea uh i think it might net be a really good thing uh but it's also um it has the potential to be something uh, that is less than good for the average person. Because um, one of the things that we see historically is when you, like the, the rule for accreditation came in the wake of the dot-com uh, uh, 
like of dot-com basically where you had uh, people lose their life savings right over over all these things and you see this also in crypto where like the moment that even there's the perception of a relaxation of this rule structure you get the development not just of frauds but of um of business uh business adjacent structures that are optimized for pure investor fraud like they are literally they're they're you get uh, the incentive gradient is so strong that you end up with a group of people who uh you know because they just like uh they they forgot about their morality or whatever they like um they go to bed at night thinking of like how can i how can i fraud people the best and they wake up in the morning and they they work nine to five on this thing that's designed to fraud people the best um, so the, the risk isn't like relax the condition and like everything will be as it was before, except more people will be able to invest. It's like relax the condition that causes an incentive of like giant fraud, but depending on how, how much the condition is relaxed, because it, it's, it's going to be different, but like that may create like an incentive for just giant fraud machines to come into existence to extract wealth from people. Um, so I, I think there's probably a way that they could they could do this uh, uh, really well, but um, there's you know there's there's a history of potential risk with something like this. So something that I've seen from a company called Republic, which actually allows anyone to invest in you know any startup through crowdfunding. It's through the SEC, but it's just this very kind of high friction way. And Republic, lim- like when I'm on it it limits me on how much I can invest. And uh, it uh, right now, I think it's like 2000 bucks. I think I've invested like 200 bucks in the last year. Like I, I'm not a wealthy person at least yet. Um, but if I was wealthy, you know, and, and let's say I got wealthy from real estate, right? Not tech. Um, I, I can't go on and probably Republic and invest hundred K into a startup. Like it caps me. And I feel like it would be smart for the sec to do the same, but at the same time, like the sec is not going to build technology, to cap everyone, it, like that's 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 not going to happen. So I guess I, I'm I'm also intrigued to see what will happen there. My last point on that is all I know is that you know I feel like I'm a pretty good person and a pretty moral person. And if the SEC changes their laws to allow anyone to invest, or at least allow me to to do investing, whatever the whatever it is, um, I feel good about that because I think, you know, I would do good things with that money just based on like the quote unquote deal flow I see. And um, it's just exciting for me. Although I do know that, you know, a lot of people would take horrible advantage of it and, and, you know, lose tons of money and rip off a lot of people. It has the potential to be a spectacular benefit. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think the the reason why the current regime is in place is that uh, it's, uh, it's simple and cheap to check and enforce. And it's reasonably effective. There, are, there's probably a lot more of the rule space that could be explored. Are you familiar with the seal uh, put put on by Ernest Capital? Are you familiar with either of those names? No. Okay, so it's so Ernest Capital is this company similar to like an NDVC or a. Uh, uh, it's pretty much revenue-based in- investing. What that means is Ernest Capital has something called a seal, where I think it's it means a, a shared earnings agreement something. I'm not getting the acronym right, but similar to you, but instead of investing in people, they just invest in companies. But And, and instead of getting equity, they get a their principal plus, you know, 
2x or 3x or something like that. And it just makes me wonder what the future of investing is going to be. Do you have any thesis on um, on the people side? Like right now, you're enabling people to invest in other people through your platform. Do you think this is going to become more common through ISAs? I guess what are ISAs going to enable uh, the future to look like? So there is uh, there are platforms that allow already for investment uh, in. In ISAs, um, securitization essentially of ISAs. Edley is probably the, the most famous and biggest one at the moment. Um, this is probably, and, and of course, uh, there's Blair as well, a really great company. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think these uh, this is going to become more and more common, um, mostly just from the uh, because it's it's in the wake and kind of dragged along by uh, the brute fact that an ISA model is strictly better than traditional education um, uh, in, in every domain where you expect to make material money from your career. Um, and so over time, uh, this is just going to become the way the world operates. Uh, you're going to want uh, as, as much as possible stuff to convert over to ISA. And if you think about that, and if you think about us, like the way that we're actually positioning ourselves for the long term like you you look at it like um the world is is all isas um it's much harder to start a boot camp now because you need to build a whole bunch of stuff to start a boot camp um you like you're no longer just a person teaching um maybe and maybe that's what you love to do maybe you love to teach but you just don't like you don't really care to um, introduce people to companies or like review the resumes or whatever. You just love to teach. Um, people like that today can still start a boot camp and be successful. In the future, they won't be able to because it's always going to be like, well, you know, where, where's the ISA and like what are the what are the terms for it and blah blah blah. So if you think about us from that standpoint, and if you think about what we offer to mentors and how that maps here, like what we offer to mentors. Um, we've now built up so much infrastructure around this that our deal to mentors is, look, all you have to do is teach really, really well, and we will take care of everything else, and you will get paid in proportion to how well you teach. The interesting thing about this is that this is also the value proposition that you want if you're starting a school or a boot camp in this new ISA world. In other words, okay, I want to start a boot camp, but I'm just me. I love to teach. And like, it's much easier to do that if you come in with all of the infrastructure, if you have something that just has all this infrastructure ready to go for you. Um, and so without going into too much detail on this, we are starting to see this sort of thing happening already uh, in, in kind of an early phase. So this is probably the the future thing that we're most excited about. And, and just like, because we're built um, ultimately as, uh, to, as, as a thing that's supposed to give you superpowers, right? As an enablement, as a, as a true platform that gives more than it takes. Like the same way that Shopify is there to make its stores great, we're there to make our mentors great at making our mentees great. That's like, that's our purpose of existence. Um, and so if we are able to do this, not just at an individual mentor level, but at a level of institutions and, and schools that go in, in different areas, 
I think this is very interesting because um, the, the, the ISA uh, wave kind of sweeps, uh, sweeps the rug out from under anyone who wants to start just a boot camp that just teaches. But if you build all of the, all of the stuff and the pieces in place to allow that to happen once again, I think that you get an amazing world because you get people who truly are passionate about teaching, um, teaching truly for the right reasons. This is so good. I, I have a couple more questions and we'll wrap it up. I, uh, I believe that I think this is going to set a record for longest podcast I've ever recorded. So great. Um, I have one last question on this ISA realm. And then I have the, the standard final question that I always ask. Do you see the world or any country or, you know, getting to a place where I see someone who, let's say they're 18 or 16 or, you know, they're young and they don't have money, but I know they're going to be big. And I say, Hey, um, you know, Susan, here is 2000 bucks. We're going to set up an ISA. So whatever you make in the next, like it's the own terms, but whatever you make, I get 3000 bucks back or, you know, whatever. Um, is that, are we going to get to that point where people can invest in people like that? And forget the accredited investor stuff for now. Um, do you see a future where that happens? I mean, if we ignore the accredited investor rule, uh, this, this already exists. Um, Edley, Edley effectively does this in a way. Um, we are a different way of doing that because again, essentially what we're doing, if you think about it from one point of view, we are using the fact time isn't actually money to get around the accredited investor rule. Um, mentors are able to invest their time, uh, even though, you know, time is money, but it's not actually money. And so the SEC is like, oh, like, we don't totally understand this. So like, we can't regulate this away because it's like your, your time. Uh, okay, cool. Go ahead. Um, and combine that with like, again, we're running experiments where we actually pay stipends to some of our mentees and you kind of get that future that you're talking about. So this is closer than we may think. Ah, uh, so fascinating. I just am, I'm either waiting for me to get rich so I can, so I can partake or for the SEC to lower the barrier without causing ruin in the world. Obviously, I hope, ideally it's the first one, right? But, uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll see how life goes. All right. I got la one last question for you. This has been such a fascinating conversation just because I just, I care so much about this topic. Um, and I think this is going to be one of the top episodes just because of how, how deep we went. I appreciate you coming on. Um, my last question for you is, and although it seems like Sharpest Minds is doing great and you're on the up and up, it still doesn't mean starting a startup or scaling a startup is easy. It's still hard and you can use all the help that you can get. And you got, you know, a good group of people listening to this podcast who are probably like, oh my gosh, this guy's awesome. How can I help? So how can the forward thinking founders community help you? What is an ask that you have for the community that we can assist with? It can be about anything. Oh my goodness. Um, what a good question. I mean, first thing people should realize is like we built like basically three totally failed companies before we built this. Um, but, but in terms of the ask, uh, I mean, the simplest thing I can think of is like, if you know anyone who's interested in mentoring or hiring from us or uh, being a mentee, send them our way. Um, most basic, simple thing. Um, go to sharpestminds.com. It should be pretty easy for you to find where you go if you're a mentee, mentor, company, uh, if we've done our job right. Uh, and generally, I mean, uh, you should feel free to 
email me or LinkedIn me or, or, or tweet at me. Um, I'm at uh, Neutrons Neurons on Twitter um, and I'm fairly active. Uh, and ask me if you need anything or, or have any questions. I, I, you'll, you'll probably add these social media links, but like I do generally help folks if they're like, oh, you know, I have a question about uh, what kind of machine learning project I should build or like how do I do this or that. Um, I'm generally like quite responsive. Uh, so yeah, feel free to ping me if you need it. Yeah, I second that. I, I I think the way we got in touch is I just Twitter DM'd you and you responded like 30 seconds later. So that that was great. I love when people responded. Um, actually, I mean, we'll finish the podcast in literally a second, but I just think Twitter DMing is like this superpower that many people don't realize, you know, what goes down in the DMs, but great things go down. Um, but one of, the, one of the things I'll yeah. say is yeah. um, uh, one of the secrets if you're a founder is... Um, VCs are very often more responsive over Twitter DM than over email. That that is true. I, I second that. And with that, we'll fi- we'll finish the podcast on that 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 genius insider insider secret. So cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. As I as I mentioned, you know, this was fascinating, and uh, just best of luck to you as you as you grow and build the future, the future of whatever industry this is going to end up being. <laughs> delighted to do it super super fun um thanks so much matt for having me okay i hope you enjoyed that podcast and if you did enjoy it and you have enjoyed previous episodes and you by chance would want to meet a good amount of the guests i've had on the podcast then you should come to the forward thinking founders meetup if you listen to the beginning of this episode you know how to attend how to get the information but if you forgot all you have to do is become an angel investor in the podcast for $10 a month or for $100 a year. You get access to all our in-person events and online communities and premium content. It's a hell of a deal. And let me be honest, it really supports me as a creator. So if you're interested in meeting some of the guests and me, your host, at this meetup in San Francisco late January, go to glow.fm f20r. And let's make it happen. Hope you have a great rest of your day and I will see you tomorrow. Peace.